If there's a way to describe me these days, it's that I've become somewhat of a book hoarder, an aspiring reader. I have stacks at home that I've grown because I constantly make the mistake of going into bookstores and walking out with one or two under my arm, knowing that I don't have enough time to read them all. Over the years, my time has become sparse. It's not something that I complain about. It's actually a good thing, but when there's a stack of books staring back at you at home, it can become an irritating reminder that maybe your priorities need some adjusting. Of course, the same thing happens when I walk by record stores, but listening to a record requires way less time than sitting down with a book and giving it my undivided attention, especially these days with the amount of time-wasting activities constantly nipping at my debilitating attention span. Going on tour is probably the best way to tackle the stack. The countless hours that usually begets idle hands while out on the road can be stemmed by a good book. Of course, once a Wi-Fi signal is found, all those good intentions get laid to waste and turned into mindless surfing on tumblers, tweeting, and writing nonsense bullshit on people's Facebook walls. With the advent of mobile devices, I have to admit to using the iPad in lieu of carrying weighty 300-plus page tomes in my touring backpack. But then there are the books that demand to be bought, demand to be read immediately, and cannot be skimmed through or converted into an EPUB or PDF file. These are the books that, when placed on your bookshelf, command attention from their spines alone. A lot of those books are put out by Bazillion Points, a New York imprint owned by Ian Christie. If you're a hard rock or heavy metal fan, then You've undoubtedly seen, if not read, bazillion point books like um, Only Death is Real by Tom Gabriel Fisher, Swedish Death Metal by Daniel Ekeroth, Touch and Go by Tesco V and Dave Stimson, and Sheriff McCoy by Andy McCoy. On two separate occasions, this podcast has hosted bazillion points authors. First, episode number 48 with Harold Oyman, DRI bassist and co-author of Murder in the Front Row, and episode number 67 with Bruce Pavitt, co-founder of Sub Pop Records and author of Experiencing Nirvana. The natural next step was to invite Ian Christie himself onto the podcast and talk about running a book company like Bazillion Points, and talk about rock, and talk about heavy metal. Thing about Bazillion Points is if I had a chance to start an imprint, I'd put out a lot of those books too. Let's not kid ourselves. The podcast is mainly a music podcast with a few comedians thrown in every now and then, but we've managed to accumulate a nice list of writers who have appeared as well. I mentioned Oyman and Pavitt, but also illustrator Gary Texali, author of This is Silly, children's writer Gordon Corman, It's So Easy author Duff McKagan, Sealed with a Kiss author, Lydia Chris. Do You Have Anything to Declare author, Kevin Stewart Panko. And of course, Stuart Berman, who wrote Too Much Trouble, the oral history of our band out on ECW Press. So Christie joins this esteemed group of writers himself, penning books like Sound of the Beast, the complete headbanging history of heavy metal, The Trouser Press Guide to 90s Rock, and Everybody Wants Some, The Van Halen Saga. 
Again, I want to thank Magnus at Bazillion Points for hooking this up. He was pivotal in hooking up the Bruce Pavitt episode. And so thank you again, Magnus. Thanks to Ian for doing this. Thanks to you for listening. Thanks to Blue Mic Microphones and Skull Candy Headphones for helping the podcast out. And without further ado, let's start. Ian Christie is this episode's guest on the official Danko Jones podcast, and it starts now. Hi, Danko. Oh, hey. hi. Look at that. Hey, did, hey, Ian. Hi. How's it going? Pretty good. Let's see. Yeah, let's well, let's jump into it. Thanks for thanks for wanting to do this. Thanks by the way, thanks for thanks for noticing what we've been doing for a while now. I'm a I'm a big fan of Bazillion Points. I like I like a, a I have a few of the books. Um the first book I ever got was actually the first book Bazillion Points ever put out, but when I bought it it wasn't on bazillion points. I got it oh. in Europe on mm-hmm. Tamara Press, uh, Swedish death metal. Yeah. By Daniel Ekarov. That's right. We started, uh, you know, I had my past experience as an author working for big publishers, or, or not working for, but releasing books through big publishers. And I was frustrated that my book, Sound of the Beast, had done really well and uh, way exceeded what HarperCollins expected. And yet, um, I wasn't able to just name like the next five books that they should, uh, you know, support me writing. And uh, looking around, I saw a lot of books that I knew people would want to read. That were, you know, they had to be published. It wasn't. It wasn't like there was a decision made. It's not like with most of these bazillion points books that I ever thought, you know, gee, if I make this, maybe I can drum up a bunch of interest in that. It, it really is all things that are, most of these books are demanding to be published. Swedish Death Metal, definitely. I felt that way. When Daniel published his own first print run of that, um, it, it was like 80 euros or 75 euros, I think, to order a copy in North America. Wow. So, uh, I, you know, I got in touch with him about, with what experience I had with distributing indie records and, um, um, pub- and producing books that I, I figured I could make it happen here for uh, le- for for less than a seventy five euro price tag, and you know it's it's worked. I think that the book has done a lot for um, the the book is so intense and funny and good. I think it's done a lot to um, open up that that you know the, the open up appreciation of the impact. Of Swedish death metal, not just on the rest of the world, but on Sweden. Yeah, right. I bought it in <laughs> really? Sweden. What it was, you get a picture that it was that country's hardcore in a way. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I bought a copy of it when I was in Sweden. I bought it at a record store called Sound Pollution in Stockholm, yep. and um, I couldn't believe they had an English copy of it. So I immediately grabbed it. But even then, if I did the, um conversion i must have spent about over 40 bucks for it and um 
it is a very important book to put out in North America because there's a lot of um, new wave of uh, American metal bands that I don't know how many of them are tipping their hat to bands like At The Gates and Entombed, but they should. So this, the book really, yeah. uh, the English version of the book really helped, I think, m- serious metal fans who are new maybe to to metal, maybe five years into it, really helped them uh, kind of grasp where they were going or or what they were actually listening to. There's There's countless books on Norwegian black metal, but it's good that this genre of of uh, of metal was focused on and given a lot of time with and like you said it's it's a labor of love from this guy Daniel Eckroth. I heard he he did he sell all his his collection to print the book in the first place? I'm not quite sure about that. Um I don't think so. I think what he sold to print the book was a collection and an incredible collection of VHS horror films. Oh, that's ex- what and I exploitation w- films. That's right. And then that kind of that that moves onward to the second book that he put out and you put it out on Bazillion Points, his uh Swedish like horror movie book. Yeah, Swedish Sensations films. It's it's everything kind of like yeah, they didn't have much too cold for drive-in theaters in Sweden, but it basically is, you know, drive-in movies, uh, biker films, street gangs, a lot of sex movies, um, and, you know, a few Vikings and, and even a couple of what, what Daniel calls Lingonberry Westerns, uh, <laughs> sweet, Swedish Westerns, right. where all of the trees are suspiciously pine trees. <laughs> right. But, yeah, Swedish Sensations Films was... Uh, something that he had done a very small edition of. And then basically he and I came over or he, he came over here and he and I went to the park and went through the entire book and add like doubled the number of films and then doubled kind of wrote it, wrote it together, uh, add, adding jokes. And well, well basically he, he would tell me the plot of the, he would have already written the plot of the film and then he would look at me and he would say, Oh, and by the way, uh, the director, the director died after throwing himself a huge birthday party that nobody came to. He ate all the food and died of a heart attack on the spot. You know, just crazy stories like that. And it seemed like every film had some <laughs> right. had some kind of <laughs> uh, like crazy twist that makes Sweden just seem like the most demented, um, <laughs> out of control, forgotten land of, of lunatics. So I think Swedish sensation films, if those films... He would be a comic genius if he constructed all of them out of his imagination. They are all real films, and the events he describes are more or less exactly the, the insane circumstances that they were produced under. But um, uh, it also reads like a comic. It, it reads like comedy. It reads like this is like a humor uh, entry mocking Sweden. Um, a lot of the books... Um on, in the catalog, the bazillion points catalog, you could tell that whoever's putting it out, obviously you, um, you're a huge <laughs> rock and roll and heavy metal fan. Um, these books aren't really just, you know, throw it against the wall kind of books. These are, these are books that appeal to a real niche market. Um, you know, who's going to buy, um, only death is real, but serious fans. 
Um, and I had to chase one down. I had to chase a copy down. And again, I actually bought it at the same uh, record store in Stockholm a few years later. Because uh. um, I just I couldn't find one here in Canada. That's a shame. We actually have Canadian distribution through a major independent distributor, PG Canada. The The thing that we're up against is um, the the retreat of bookstores. You know, Indigo yes. has been having a hard couple of years. I grew up with the music that's documented in the books that Bazillion Points puts out. So I know that it's significant to me, and I know that it's significant to a lot of people that I know. And yet... Um, publishing isn't necessarily administrated. Mainstream publishing isn't necessarily administrated by music fans. Yeah. And in general, the narrative of music is very calcified. I mean, you, you must run against this all the time. You know, it's a, you're running up against the frustration of not being Pearl Jam or clearance <laughs> Creedence Clearwater Revival and having earned your stripes in 1992 or 1972 or 1952 and the books continue to pump out about New York punk in the 70s yeah. and um, you know in heavy metal if people if a publisher decides to do a heavy metal book nine times out of ten it's yet another Metallica biography yeah you know last thing that the world needs it's Unless true. it's our murder in the front row book, in which case everyone needs it. A significant portion of early death metal was made by Tom Gabriel Fisher in his village in, in Switzerland. And for him to actually sit down and spend years writing a book describing his experiences, it's, it's incredible. Makes me ask you, are you going to be publishing Are You, are you Morbid? The, uh, the second plan. edition. That's, yeah, that is the plan. You are. He, we've been talking about it um, only for a couple of weeks now, oh, but wow. uh, that would be a, a thrilling prospect. Uh, it, I think that it's a companion piece to "Only Death Is Real" would be uh, would be super exciting. Um, it's very different. It's going to be challenging because uh, it, Hellhammer was so isolated. It's more of a personal. It's more of exclusively his story. And um, when once Celtic Frost began, there were so many more characters involved, you know. Hellhammer already involved hundreds of people, but with Celtic Frost, all of a sudden there were world travels and booking agents and interactions with, with way more people face to face. So it's gonna be it's gonna be interesting. I remember and Tom is incredible, you know. He dedicates himself yeah. with furious focus anything that he's doing so absolutely um Triptychon and the, the last Celtic Frost album were amazing one of the regrets I have was when I when Are You Morbid was first out and uh I saw it at uh Page's bookstore in Toronto and I picked it up and I said should I buy this and I just didn't have enough money and I passed on it and when I finally did have enough money uh, copies are going on eBay for like a hundred bucks now. Yes. Which and is right. as much as the inflation has it changed the value of a dollar. It hasn't changed it that much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it would have been much better. We would have been uh, better off getting it in 1995. I, I so regret not fuck. It's just like every time I think of that moment, I just go, why the, I sh should have just passed on lunch that day. 
<laughs> Where do you find, or do they come to you, like books like uh, Murder in the Front Row, um, the Touch and Go, and the and the Metallian compilations? Where, where, do you um, find, seek these? these guys out or do they come to you like how do you get these like the touch and go case was a book that was going to be published by a big art book publisher and then at some point they had a meeting and they realized what was in the book and they were offended and they said you know no way unfortunately somebody close to tesco v had already been reading had read the, the our sweet our swedish death metal book right. and said you should really contact this guy and I actually grew up a little bit in the Midwest and, um, you know, had my life after, after being minted, I died in the wool metalhead. Um, I was, my family moved to the American Midwest for a while in Southern Indiana in high school. And that was a uh, incredibly bleak and dreary place. And that Midwestern hardcore that was mainly coming out on the touch, touch and go label back then, like the Kreutzen and negative approach in the meat man mm-hmm. yeah. and, and bands like the zero boys. Toxic reasons. Um, that that was what was happening and exciting and, and life saving there. So uh, I had a deep personal connection. I was totally psyched and stoked to be putting that out. I love that touch and go book. It's it's amazing because every single chapter is a different phase of hardcore's development. It doesn't exist at the beginning and at the very end. By the final chapter, the final issue. I mean, that's anthologized in the touch and go book. You know, it's Ian Mackay and Henry Rollins on the cover. They're already Black Flag and Minor Threat are already like you know peaking, and and cl- the classic hardcore era is is right there. And then different things happen different ways. I, I, the new Experiencing Nirvana book. Uh, I knew that Bruce Pavitt had been going through his photos and from touring with Nirvana and Mudhoney in Europe in 1989. And um, I went and he had been producing an ebook, and I went and convinced him that. Uh, the re- you know the revolution is not quite here yet. People only paper is real. Come on, these photos <laughs> deserve to be seen. Printed, you know the page. Even a, even the latest generation of iPads is like a sixth of a typical page, a sixth of a page resolution wise to to our books like Murder in the Front Row and, and the We Got Power book and and Only Death is Real and now the Experience in Nirvana book. So. The books come in, books come in different stages of completion from all different channels, and I think maybe in the future things will you know things get a little more pro with each and every book, and we're almost up to twenty now. But still, it does involve like tracking down people like Jeff Wagner, who I know is the prog metal guru of the universe, and pleading with him to put it all down on paper. You know, get it all get it all down. Just go ahead, dedicate a few years, but spend a lot of long hours laboring over a little oil lamp. What have you got to lose? But I mean, you know, mainly our authors have already been doing that anyway. Right. <laughs> I mean, believe me, Daniel Eckeroth, that guy never gets any sleep. <laughs> um, it's an interesting thing that you started this um, this this company in 2008 when that whole digital ebook wave was just about to begin on a, on a really grand level. Um, 
your books are aesthetically pleasing. They're, they demand attention when they're sitting on a, on a table. But obviously, you must be nervous about just how the, the oncoming wave of everybody getting on the whole iPad iBooks thing. Um, honestly, I was a little more nervous about that a year or two ago because right. the heat was really on. And Barnes & Noble here in the States and Amazon were hyping their ebook readers so heavily. It, I think people were buying those readers, not necessarily using them, but feeling like, oh, this is the new thing now. We don't need books. Right. Just, we're just reading them. We're just going to have this e-reader and I'll have all my books here. Well, those things are not good substitutes for books. They're convenient if you spend a lot of time on airplanes or, or uh, uh, on subways, like you know, I do living in New York, I do read phones. I read books on my phone, mm-hmm. but um, they're annoying. You know, they have to be synced. They run out of power. The entire experience is completely different. Where you're reading like tiny little lines that are broken up in odd ways. The formatting, it's like a website from 1995. But the sales pitch was so hard and heavy. I was a little more worried about it. Um, It's kind of leveled off now. This year, Barnes & Noble's ebook sales are down like 40 or 50% or something. Um, I'm not rejoicing in that. You know, we sell ebooks of our text based books. But it was just kind of annoying to kind of have to battle against this perception that books were over or dead. Right. I think that there's definitely a place for ebook readers. It's not the same. It's not going to be the same as what iPods were to to um, CDs. It's, right. It, a, a lot of people could not tell you the difference between iPods or CDs playing in a room, but everybody can tell the difference between a, a, a gritty. Um, <laughs> a gritty e-reader screen and a big lavish book, especially if the e-reader's out of batteries. <laughs> and and also in the case of like Murder in the Front Row and Experiencing Nirvana, you just can't top um, the photos right in front of you that you're actually holding it rather than just skimming, um, using your finger to skim through it. It's kind of like the difference between watching a live show on your laptop or and really being at the live show. Yeah, it's a difference. Yes, that's a, that's a great analogy. Um, I mean, I, I, I know some, some people probably do this once in a while, but, you know, staying home and watching the YouTube footage of a show you didn't go to is really sad. <laughs> <laughs> it's nice to not have to haul around giant books when we sell ebooks. Um, Books de- dealing with books was the dealing with physical boxes filled with paper that weigh fifty pounds um, was the one unexpected side effect of starting a publishing company. But on the other hand, probably it's probably good for my health. <laughs> you get a lot of exercise sometimes. When Metallion and the Slayer Mag Diaries came out, and each book was six pounds, um, plenty of exercise. Right. I kind of want to go back to um, how you find these books to put out. Um, when it came to Murder in the Front Row, did Brian Liu and Harold Oymun, uh did they contact you or did you contact them? I heard that Harold O 
had a had a stash or, or was looking for someone to publish a book of of his photos. And I'd actually been looking for him when I when I put together Sound of the Beast in the early 2000s. And, you know, that was pre-Facebook. I mean, now he's very, very much easier to get a hold of Harold Oyman. But um, back then, it was like, you know, I get a phone number here and then it would be passed on. Somebody would give me... There was this whole chain where Peyton from Hyrax put me in touch with Jeff Becerra, who put me in touch with Ron Quintana, who gave me a number for Harold that wasn't good anymore. So, so Peyton... Jeff Becerra and Ron Quintana all ended up in Sound of the Beast, and Harold just remained a legend. You know, I <laughs> like I don't know. And then, you know, a few years later, I hear that his photo stash is still exists, and he's around. And in fact, he's been playing bass in DRI for like 15 years, and he wants to put a book out. And I've been thinking for a while about putting together a West Coast book with a bunch of different people's photos. Um, but especially, especially Brian Liu and, and Harold O. Well, it turned out that those two came from the same Silicon Valley or South, South San Francisco, uh, suburb called Sunnyvale. And they actually, it was actually Brian that got Harold into Metallica in the very beginning. The photo of Cliff Burton on the back of Ride the Lightning that Harold took was his, was the first time Harold ever saw Metallica. So he had... And then Harold worked at like a photo map place. So he had unlimited access to film and just had insane amounts of candid photos of Death Angel when they were 15 years old. And, you know, the, the drummer's sitting on Dave Mustaine's lap and um, monkeying around at the Metallica house in El Cerrito. Well, I put that together with Brian's early photos, which were super historically significant. Uh, like it's insane to me when we were scanning at a, at a nice photo facility in San Francisco that we, he, I, there's like a roll of film of a, a little living room. It's all black and white. It's Metallica jamming with Cliff Burton for the very first time. And it's unreal how intimate those photos are. And then I'm sitting next to the guy that took the photos. It just, it was just a very weird sensation. I had that, feeling so many times with murder in the front row. Right. But Brian really got, Brian was there when Kirk Hammett was in Exodus and used to do like a Hendrix guitar solo, rubbing his guitar on the amps. And when date, when Gary Holt wore a dog collar and a striped <laughs> new wave kind of shirt. And, um, that book, it was it, the changing the subject a little bit. Putting books together is always a different. Acquiring the books is always is always a totally. They always come from different sources, um, meaning some of them close to me, some of them out of the blue. Um, but how they come together as books is always completely different. Sometimes it's a case of matching photos up to a, a, to a long text, but in Murder in the Front Row, it was like telling a story using only photos. But fortunately. There were over 400 photos in the book, so um, as difficult as it was to process all of that into a into a timeline and a storyline, um, once it came together, after like six months of mental crunching, I guess uh, it was it was really cool. It was cool to see. Now you can just very kind of breezily flip through and go, "Oh, okay." And then Slayer came to town. Oh, I see. 
and then Legacy formed, and they wore priest collars, and you know they were evil, and they jammed, and then they started to look more. Then they all started dressing alike, and then Metallica got super confident and started using big backdrops. And then by the end of the book, you know they're playing to thirty or fifty thousand people at Oakland Coliseum or, or in Day at the Day on the Green. Um, you know, there's just, there's definitely a timeline. So it's it was a cool experience for me as an author who already can process tons and tons and tons of stories and text into a master narrative. It was cool to do the same thing with images. That was definitely something fun and challenging that I learned since I started putting putting books out. Harold Harold has said that he has enough photos for. Uh, another book. He definitely has enough photos and we have to figure out uh, how I want to figure out whether it would be another overarching narrative like murder in the front row or if it, right. or if it would make more sense to go super focused. Like he probably has 800 Slayer photos spanning from I think eighty three or at least like January of eighty four through early nineties. The way because I I'm uh, I'm friends with Harold on Facebook, and the impression I get is that he's got eight hundred photos of just Cliff Burton, <laughs> which would be a book that would interest me immediately. Yeah, the Metal Mania zines are a much talked about thing in in the metallica story is that of interest to you to put out ron quintana's metal mania zines uh yes and also the the new york counterpart to that is uh kick-ass monthly which was a huge influence on me uh when i was like in my young teens you know i picked up this black and white magazine at the store where i used to buy like man of war and voivod and early slayer records and uh there was this like black and white magazine with Ronnie Dio on the cover. That's how I learned. That was probably the first time I ever saw pictures of Metallica and read an interview with them. And it, and that same issue of Kick-Ass Monthly had a like 10-page interview with Hellhammer. It was just fascinating. Like, what? What is this band? What are they up to? And, you know, it was so in-depth and ambitious. I mean, everything that Hellhammer did was so significant and predetermined. And they had really like super gripping, cool-looking photos. Um, so Kick Kickass Monthly is a major, major influence. It's funny the the Slayer record Live on Dead. Tom Mariah introduces some that that whole thing about Die by the Sword. The pen is mightier than the sword. He starts out saying Kickass, Kickass Muldowney. He's talking about Bob Muldowney, the uh, the editor of Kickass Monthly. Oh wow. And then I asked Slayer about, you know, I interviewed Slayer at some point in the 90s and said something about Bob Muldowney coming to the show in New York. And they were like, who? Who's that? Really? <laughs> Listen, you know, you don't have to remember every single person involved in your early years, but he's on your record, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Is that of interest of you, to you to put out the, these zines, like the whole collection of them? Um. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what to do about it. There are a lot of things I'd like to put out, uh, ranging from like Black Thor- Blackthorn from Denmark and uh, uh, one of the most insane zines of the early days of death metal was Nasty Ronnie's Wage of Mayhem zine. 
Um, but for the for the foreseeable future, we're putting out the heavy metal movies book. I think we're going to reissue just Slayer Ten, Slayer Mag Number Ten. Um, putting out a very in depth book about melodrons. That's done by the uh, director of uh, melodrama, the Melotron movie, the documentary that we put out a couple years ago. And that's got like, you know, that's really funny. We have an introduction for that book written by Mike Pinder from the Moody Blues. Wow. And uh, Sub Pop USA. So there's going to be a zine collection of Bruce Pavitt's writing about American American independent rock music from 1980 to 88. That covers everything from the Beastie Boys' first stuff, Run DMC's early records, Metallica, Slayer, um, obviously K Records, and then towards the end, his early his own early sub pop records. And I think we are trying to figure out how to put out a really cool photo book done by two a Swedish brother and sister team called A Labor of Love and Hate which is uh, Southeast Asian metal photos, along with interviews with uh, uh, key figures in the scene in Indonesia, Malaysia, and Thailand. Wow, that's pretty heavy. Busy, really busy, like 12 to 18 months now. So this is like uh, two, three books a year? Oh, it's only been one or two for the last couple of years, so this year it will be uh, four or five. Oh, wow. Okay. So it's a pretty busy year for Bazillion. Yes, Definitely not sitting around thinking about what books to put out in the future right now. Right. But relishing the joys of putting out the stuff that we actually already have. Aside from bazillion points, you putting out these books, you are you are an author yourself. You did uh, Sounds of the Beast and... What's very interesting to me, because I'm a huge fan, is Everybody Wants Some, the Van Halen story. Um, yeah, now out in French. Oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> Were they big in France? Uh, they toured there. They have played in France. I always got the feeling in all my European travels that Van Halen was the one American band that wasn't as big in Europe as their contemporaries like Motley Crue and Guns N' Roses, et cetera? You know, they, their contemporaries, the definition of, the, of Van Halen's contemporaries is super interesting because they burst onto the scene in 78. That's true. A full five years before Motley Crue. So yeah. uh, they were actually involved in, in blowing away the aging dinosaurs like Led Zeppelin and Black, famously Black Sabbath but also Aerosmith and a lot of guys like Rick Derringer and all these guys that were the super hard rock heroes of the seventies, um, shared bills with Van Halen, Ted mm-hmm. Nugent, ZZ Top, you know, Sammy Hagar and his bands. It's just, when I think of Van Halen, I, I do tend to go to the, to the tail end of the Roth years with 84 and, Around 84, crew were breaking. There was like the whole Quiet Riot crew. Yeah. Uh, maybe Guns N' Roses a little later. That's maybe two, three years later. But that whole kind of beginning of what eventually became glam rock, that whole scene is huge in Europe. And yet Van Halen always get uh, passed over. 
at least this is from my observation. I could be totally wrong. But that's you're just, right. They didn't put a lot of effort into Europe after like 1982. I think that at that point they they were uh, major. They were a major hard rock band, including they did a major tour of Europe in '82, and they um, never came back. <laughs> they got preoccupied with with Eddie Van Halen building his own home studio and then making the 1984 record, and then it was all about MTV. And after that, once Sammy Hagar was in the band, they became more of a radio band. And right. for some reason, didn't didn't travel to Europe again. Um, yeah, it's 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 really fascinating that they're really an American band. And I guess at the time that I wrote that book, they they were totally overlooked. They have come back and they've done you know this oldies tour for the last few years, but they were their legacy was starting to fade. But they were the hugest band in the early nineteen eighties and late seventies and. Eddie Van Halen's guitar playing revolutionized and made possible 80s heavy metal guitar playing. Van Halen is a band that continued to fascinate me because just like you said, uh, they came out in what, 78 and there's, you know, it's just pre MTV, pre music video, even though they have some from that time. Um, So there's a lot of um, mythology around the whole Van Halen camp. And you have larger than life characters and Eddie's playing and, and Roth's persona. Um, so I'm endlessly fascinated with it. The Hager book, um, really shed some light on, you know, Eddie Van Halen, I guess, post OU812. Yeah. I wouldn't, I don't know if I'd call that light that they shoveled on him. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, yeah. Um, (laughs) They shoveled something, they shed something on him. Yeah. But I think in, in, at the end of the day, now that the kind of the dust has settled, I think Roth ends up looking really good, better than what everybody thought he would end up looking. You know, I he's a fascinating character. You know, I mean, his outside interests. He he must not get. I'm sure he's some kind of an insomniac. Um, he was on. Uh, he was on the Joe Rogan podcast last year and he was in japan so he basically nobody knew this but you know roth likes to go incognito and go off and like experience life uh, off the radar yeah so what happened is van halen was about to play four huge shows in in japan like two in tokyo one in nagoya i think and maybe one in osaka and because things are always shaky in the van halen camp they didn't, those shows all were canceled. But meanwhile, in a, months in advance of that, Roth had gone to Tokyo and gotten himself an apartment. He figured he'd soak up the local flavor and, um, you know, really enjoy Van Halen playing these shows over there. Uh, the shows didn't happen, and Roth ended up staying there for like two years. <laughs> he, f- he found himself a, a sword dojo, right. practice sword practiced, you know, martial arts and got into some like intensive uh, Japanese language, immersion uh, language school and check that out for a while. That makes sense. He also raises sheepdogs. Really? Yeah, he raises and trains sheepdogs and now he's uh, practicing with sniper rifles. He's into these high-powered sniper rifles that, um, you know, are, are used to pick off people 30 miles away. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. Van Halen's a fascinating band, and they're they're really important. Um, I don't think they've done as much justice to their legacy as bands like Aerosmith or or Kiss. Now, you know, Kiss has like twenty books about themselves. Half of them made by Kiss. Yeah. Uh, they're really into cultivating their own history, and it, it, it's it makes probably makes financial sense. But it's also, you know, it's fun to cherish all of that stuff and, and revel in your own past glories. And I think uh, Van Halen is notoriously tight with, with any kind of studio outtakes. There's just nothing's been forthcoming. Well, I and, yet, heard, and yet there is a lot of stuff. There's a ton of unreleased stuff. What I had heard before the, uh, the last Van Halen album, I'd heard this three years prior to the last Van Halen album being released was that I was told that, okay, this new album are just old songs from the Ted Templeman days. And if Eddie couldn't do the solo in three tries, they, they trashed the song. <laughs> so all those songs were, were unearthed for this last Van Halen album. And that's why it sounds like it sounds so from that era. Beyond yeah. Roth and beyond Eddie, it, it just sounds like it was from those days. Yeah, those are old songs, yeah, for sure. But I, that's what I heard. If, if Eddie couldn't do the solo in three takes, they move on to the next song. Which is actually a lot. I think the jump was done in two takes. So that might, <laughs> there might be some, some cred to that story. And I heard it from a very good source. Beat It, I think, was one take. Yeah. So, I mean, that makes sense. <laughs> he's like one of those old jazz guys who nails it on the first take. And if you can't nail it by take three, it's not supposed to happen. Yeah. Whereas someone like me, if I don't nail it, I will, if I don't nail it by maybe the 25th take, maybe we should move on. Come back to it tomorrow. <laughs> Come back to it tomorrow. But, um, I, I mean, I could talk to you all day about Van Halen. There are, like like we've both said, they're they're endlessly fascinating. Um, but anyways, uh, Ian, it was great to talk to you about bazillion points. Oh, likewise. Thanks, Ian. Thanks, Danko. Thanks,